Uh, it's difficult to know what to preach when you have one time you're just parachuted in as a guest preacher and to know what to select, and, and there's many arrows in my quiver, but uh, in carefully thinking through and praying what would be uh, a way that I could serve you and encourage you and minister to you this morning, my heart has been drawn to the book of First John. So if you would take your Bible, I almost preached out of Philippians, and Dan told me that he's preaching out of Philippians, so that would have not been good, so... So, the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, and I want to begin by reading what will be our text that we'll be looking at today. Uh, my goal is to look at verses 1 through 3, and I, I'm hoping I can get through that many uh, verses. We'll see how this goes. It'll all depend on how quickly you listen, okay? So, uh, 1 John chapter 3, I want to begin reading in verse 1. This is God's inspired and errant and infallible word. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be made like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. There is an old adage that goes something like this, that such and such a person is so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. And I think we understand what this means, that this person has his head in the clouds and his feet cannot touch the ground in daily living, or he's out of touch with reality, or He's just all pie in the sky. He, he's spaced out. He's, he's in another world. He's living in an ivory tower. He's so heavenly minded, he's, so, he's no earthly good. I think I understand the concern, but the fact is nothing could be further from the truth. I personally have never yet met anyone who is too heavenly minded such that they are no earthly good. Uh, the fact is, you and I will never be any earthly good until we are first heavenly minded. Colossians 3 and verse 2 tells us, set your mind on things above. That is an imperative command. We are commanded by God to set our mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. In other words, as we live our Christian life and as we walk through this world, we are to remain focused with an eternal perspective and a divine preoccupation. We are to always be thinking about the world above as we are living in this world below. 
I want to reinforce this. You and I must be heavenly minded if we are to be any earthly good. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto us. And this is the truth that comes through loud and clear in this text. And I pray that as a result of our looking at this passage that the Lord would elevate our thoughts and lift up our hearts to the throne of grace above. There are three things, excuse me, four things that I want you to note in these three verses. And I'll just lay out for you where we are headed. In the first part of verse 1, I want you to note the love of the Father. And how appropriate on this Father's Day for us to be looking at the love of our Heavenly Father. And then second, I want you to note the mystery of believers. That's in the second half of verse 1. Now, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And then third, in verse 2, I want you to note the appearing of the Son, that when he appears, we will be made like him, for we shall see him just as he is. And then finally, I want you to note the purifying of the church. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So let's begin in verse 1. And I want you to first note the love of the Father. The apostle begins with the present state of us as believers as we are living here on the earth. And he, and he begins, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. He, he is saying, look at this with a sense of astonishment and amazement that the Father has set such a great love upon us. Those few words, how great a love, do you see that? Literally out of the original language, out of the Greek, it means literally of what country. And the idea is that the love of God is unlike anything this world has to offer or we will ever experience, that this love of the Father has come down from another country. It has come down from another realm. It has come down out of, out of this world and is totally foreign to any love that is ever seen, ever experienced, or ever demonstrated in this world. The love of this world falls woefully short to the love that God the Father has for us. God's love is higher, it is deeper, it is wider, it is longer. There's not even a category for us to compare the love of God. There is no earthly comparison. It is immeasurable. It is incomparable. It is inexplainable. It is inexhaustible. And I want you to turn back just for a moment to chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, and just look with me for a moment just to dig down into this a little bit in, in verses 9 and 10, 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. 
Let me just give you a few words to just help flesh this out of the Father's love for us. And as I, as I do this, I want to make just a, a comment that to me, the forgotten member of the Trinity is strangely enough, God the Father. Obviously and rightly so, there is much focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. We preach Christ in him crucified. We proclaim him. And there is so much focus on the Holy Spirit today in so many circles and in so many realms. And left standing over in the shadows in the corner is the forgotten person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, which is God the Father. And I think it, it, it would be important for us, even on Father's Day, for us to just pause for a moment and focus our thoughts upon God the Father who has set into motion everything good in our life. It, it is God the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It wasn't the Son who chose us, and it wasn't the Spirit who chose us. It is God the Father who chose us on the basis of Christ. It was God the Father who was the architect and author of the gospel. It is God the Father who designed this extraordinary plan of salvation, and it is God the Father who commissioned the Son and sent the Son into this world to die for us. It is God the Father who gave us to the Son in eternity past to be the, the chosen bride of Christ. And it is God the Father who has sent the Holy Spirit into this world to convict us and to call us and to regenerate us. But it is all emanating from God the Father. So much so that in Romans 11 and verse 36, as Paul comes to the end of that extraordinary uh, magnum opus presentation of the gospel in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, as he comes to the end, he, 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 he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That hymn refers to God the Father. That everything good in our life has proceeded from God the Father. It is mediated through the Son and it is applied by the Spirit. But it has all come down from the throne of grace from God the Father. And so let us not forget how great a love the Father has for us. And so as we, we look at this in 1 John 4 and verse 9, by this the love of God, and God here is distinguished from Son in the middle of the verse. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God 
sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Let us give glory to God the Father on this Father's Day for the extraordinary love that he has for us. And just to give you a few descriptive words to even break out this love from these verses in 1 John 4, uh, it's a demonstrated love in verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us. And God didn't just love us with words. God loved us with deeds and with, with action that is manifested and made apparent. And then in verse 9 and, and, and 10, it's a sacrificial love. He, he sent his only begotten son. You see, love is that which sacrificially gives of itself to seek the highest good in the one loved. And there is a sense in which God bankrupted heaven to give to us the one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and understanding to give his son to us. I have three sons. And I cannot even imagine being put into a, a, a set of circumstances in which I would have to choose to give up one of my three sons unto death. But I would still have two other sons to love and to spend time with me. But God gave his, his only son, his one-of-a-kind son, his monogenes, his, his unique son, and he delivered him over unto death for us. And it's a rescuing love. At the end of verse 9, it says that we might live through him. And in verse 10, that he would be the propitiation for our sins. You see, we were under the wrath of God. There's more to the story than smile. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We were under the wrath of God, and God, the Bible says, is angry with the wicked every day. God has indignation towards the wicked every day. And even we as the elect of God, before we were converted and brought to faith in Christ, we too were objects of the wrath of Almighty God. And for God to initiate this intervention and in his love to send his son to deliver us from destruction and to rescue us from eternal ruin. What kind of love is this? This is love that has no comparison that, that, that God would do this, and then it's an initiating love. In, in, verse, in verse 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. Listen, if God only loved those who loved him first, nobody would be saved. We, 
spiritually dead sinners do not love God. In fact, they are God-haters, not God-lovers. And God has chosen to send his son for God-haters and truth-rejecters. And this love is so personal. It says in verse 16 that, that the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This is far more than just paperwork in heaven. This is far more than just erasing some accounts. This is God actually coming to, to live inside of us and, and to abide in us. So come back to our text in, in 1 John 3 and in, in verse 1. And, it, and, it, and it's hard to just move on from, from this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed. And the idea of bestowed, freely given, not earned, not merited, not deserved, and he says, on us. Thus here refers to all of us who are in Christ. The us here refers that God has chosen to love poor, wretched, marred, corrupted, defiled, depraved, polluted sinners who have no righteousness of their own with which to commend themselves to a holy God. Let us not forget who it is that God has chosen to love. God has chosen to love those who are the most unlovely objects imaginable. God did not love us because we're valuable. We're valuable because God loves us. God, only God, loves such sin-twisted, contemptible rebels. You remember a couple of weeks ago when they had the royal wedding? And Prince Henry, with full military, formal attire, standing at the head of the aisle of the church there at Windsor Castle, and then coming down the aisle was Meghan Markle, the television starlet, and Prince, Prince Henry at the front of the church, so handsome. That makes total sense to me. That the, one of the heirs to the throne of England would marry a Hollywood movie star? I get it. That, that makes total sense. It's like the quarterback marrying the homecoming queen. It makes total sense. You know what makes no sense whatsoever? That God would love us. God doesn't love us because of us. God loves us in spite of us. There was nothing in us that would draw the love of God towards us, it all originated simply in the heart 
and in the mind and in the will of Almighty God. God loved us because he chose to love us, not because of us, but in spite of us. It is a love that originated within himself, and there was nothing in us that would draw out love from God. It all self-originated within himself. We should be in a state of bewilderment this morning, that the God of heaven and earth, the King of glory, would choose for his son such lowly wretches as we are to be bound to him. What kind of love is this? This is love out of another Category out of another realm, out of another world that is entirely foreign. He goes on to say, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of, of God. And such we are. And John is in somewhat amazement that, that such we are. Now, we have entered into the family of God through one narrow gate. But we need to understand that there are two metaphors, two analogies to describe us entering into this relationship with God the Father through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would become children of God. One is by regeneration. The doctrine of the new birth. The other is the doctrine of adoption. And there is a difference between the new birth and adoption. And the Puritans, I think, rightly understood that at the highest apex of all the blessings that would be bestowed on us, one under the beatific vision that one day we would behold God is the doctrine of adoption. And let me tell you the difference. With the doctrine of the new birth, which I love to preach on, we enter the kingdom of heaven as infants. We enter the kingdom of heaven as mere babes. Uh, We are birthed into the kingdom and we come into the kingdom as little tiny infants And we will spend the rest of our lives growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will spend the rest of our lives spiritually maturing in sanctification and becoming more and more like Christ and growing through the different stages of spiritual development. We start out as little babies and we end up as mature men and women. And there is this spiritual development as a result of the doctrine of regeneration. But the doctrine of adoption is different. We do not enter the kingdom or the family of God and be called children of God. We do not start off as infants. With the doctrine of adoption, we enter the family of God as a mature adult. And the moment that we enter the family of God, 
we immediately have all of the rights and all of the privileges of a mature adult son or daughter, and we are granted all that comes with being a member of the family. We become a joint heir. Uh, we, we, we enter into a vast inheritance, and the Holy Spirit is put within us as a, as a down payment for our, our future fullness of, of inheritance. Now, here is the difference. Here we are as the sinner standing before the, the judgment bar of God, guilty, fallen short of the glory of God, the curse of the law is death, the wages of sin is death, and we stand before the, the judgment of God and Jesus Christ standing next to us as our advocate. And because of our faith in Jesus Christ, the gavel comes down and we are declared justified. And we are forensically declared the righteousness of God in Christ but if that's all that it is, the judge gets up from behind the bench and goes home. And we who are imputed the righteousness of Christ in the act of justification, we just go our separate way. But with the truth of adoption, it goes further than justification. Once we are declared righteous, God then adopts us and says, you're coming home with me. And everything that I have is yours. And from the moment your foot steps into my house, everything that I have has been transferred over to your account. And you have a place at the table. You have a seat next to me. And for the rest of your existence, I'm going to take care of every single need that you will ever have to the extent that I perceive it is in the best interest of my glory and your good. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. I want you to come, if you would, just for a second to Romans chapter 8. You know, it's been said, if the book, if the Bible is a ring, the diamond on the ring is the book of Romans, and the apex cut on that diamond is Romans chapter 8. So come to the apex cut of the diamond of the ring, Romans chapter 8. And I want you to look just for a second, if you will, with me at verses 29 and 30. It's the golden chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, 
he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. The million-dollar question is, who is the he? Who's the one who's driving this whole thing? Who is the one who is overseeing the entire enterprise of salvation? Who is the one standing in eternity past and bringing this all to completion into eternity future? Well, the he is different from the son in verse 29. That's, that's obvious and that's clear. And in verse 32, he did not spare his own son. So we know the he is not referring to Jesus Christ. And the he does not refer to the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Spirit is mentioned in verses 26 and 27 and is distinguished from God in verse 28 who causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. The he is God the Father. It is God the Father who for chose to love us, which is what the word foreknowledge means, prognosco. It is God the Father who previously in eternity past set his heart of affection upon us and loved us with a distinguishing love. And it is God the Father then who predestined everything that would come in regards to our salvation and what predestination very simply means is that the destination is determined before the journey begins. And these whom he predestined, he called. God the Father called by the Spirit. And these he justified. It is God the Father who declared us to be the righteousness of God. And it is God the Father who, has, who will glorify us one day. And it is so certain it is translated in your English Bible as a past tense verb. You're already there. In the heart and the mind and the will of God that is immutable and irrevocable. So what I want you to see, interestingly enough, on this Father's Day, (laughs) is that it is God the Father who is the source of all of this. It is God the Father who is the, the one who is overseeing it all. He's the one causing all things to work together for good in your life and in my life. And it is God the Father who overcame your resistance and unbelief and triumphed in your heart, calling you to himself, regenerating you by the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's the Father who sent the Spirit to do this. It is the Father who sent the Son to die upon the cross. It is the Father who has guaranteed our eternal destiny to one day stand faultless before His throne. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. That he singled us out while we were under his wrath in his mind to be the recipient of his unconditional, eternal, infinite, irrevocable love. What an extraordinary place we find ourselves as we gather to worship this day. 
And that is why in Ephesians 1, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, it says, To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's all directed to the Father. So, this is the love of the Father. Now, I have time for one more of these headings. <laughs> I want you to note at the second half of verse 1, come back to 1 John 3. Come back to, to our text, 1 John 3. And the second thing that I want you to note is the mystery of the believers. Notice the second half of verse 1. For this reason, the world does not know us. Because it did not know him. For this reason, meaning for the reason that the Father chose us before the world... He chose us out of the world because the Father has set his love upon us that now we are in the world, but we are not of the world. It says the world does not know us. What does that mean? I mean, the world certainly knows our name. Your unsaved neighbors know your first name. Your unsaved work associates know your name. They know your address. They know your zip code. They know your spouse's name and your children's name. They have all kinds of cognitive data about you. What does this mean? The world does not know us. It means the world does not have a relationship with us because we are living in a totally different realm, totally different kingdom, headed in a totally different direction. We have totally different values and totally different priorities and totally different beliefs. And we are an unsolved mystery to the world. We are an enigma to your unsafe father-in-law. We are a riddle that cannot be solved. Everything about us is different. Our worldview is different. Our life purpose is different. Our base motives are different. Everything about us is different. And the Bible says that we are strangers and aliens in this world. The Bible says our citizenship is in heaven. The Bible says that we are very out of place. We don't fit into the system. The world cannot understand why you woke up this morning and came to church. Or why didn't you go to the lake? Or why, why didn't you go on a trip? Why, why did you come here? 
why do you sing hymns? Why do you sit in church for an hour and listen to someone preach to you something that you don't do any other time throughout the whole week? Why do you reach into your pocket and take out your hard-earned money and put it in a little brown plate? Here it is right here. Why do you do that? Why do you give your money away? Why why do you go on short-term mission trips to obscure third-world countries? Why why do you live like this? Why, Why... Why did you not live with your wife before you got married? Why did you not have sex before you were married? Why why do you raise your children the way that you do? Why do you just hover over them and keep asking them where they're going and who their friends are and what time are are they coming back home because nobody else's parents are, are saying that? Listen. The day the world understands you is the day you have become worldly. And the more godly you are, the more of an enigma and a puzzle and a riddle you are to the carnal mind. And he gives us the reason. At the end of the verse 1, why the world doesn't know us He says, because the world did not know him. When Christ came, they had no comprehension that this was the creator of heaven and earth, that this was the the prince of life, the king of glory in in human form. As it didn't know him, they didn't have a clue who he was. And interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8, it says that if they had known him, they wouldn't have crucified him. And it was according to the extraordinary, brilliant, providence, and inscrutable will of Almighty God in sending His Son into this world that the world did not know Him or understand Him. That's why they crucified Him. But that was a part of the eternal plan and purpose of God. That they would remain in darkness so that they would crucify Him. The world didn't know him. And because the world didn't know him, the world does not know us. And for us to fit into the system is like a square peg into a round hole. We just don't fit. So this is the mystery of the believers. And while there are so many churches in this town, in Dallas all around the country, who are just desperately dying to be popular with the world. They have totally forgotten this text. That the world will never figure us out. In fact, because they persecuted him, they will persecute us. And in 1 John 15, 18, because they hated him, Jesus promised they will hate us. 
Now, we don't have a martyr's complex, and we, we don't really want that, but we have to understand on the front end, that's the way the world works. So, this contrast. What an encouragement to this, these early believers. who This is written towards the end of the first century where the persecution from the Roman Empire has escalated and John will in short time be on the island of Patmos suffering hard labor for his faith in Jesus Christ as they are rejected by the world and the world does not know you to know that the Father loves you and knows you. That truth becomes far more precious the more the world does not know us that we were foreknown by the Father from before time began. Now, I need to quickly wrap this up, or this will become a series. Um, um, I know when you're laughing with me and when you're laughing at me, okay? So I'll leave that. Um, All right, what have we seen? We have seen the love of the Father, and we have seen the mystery of believers, and I've got like 10 minutes here. I want you to see the appearing of the Son. In verse 2, we read, Beloved, which is a term of, of, of great endearment. Not just one's love, but beloved. Now we are children of God. And he reinforces what he just said in verse 1. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Now, what we do know is where we're going. But John acknowledges that it has not appeared as yet what we will be when we arrive. And he's referring to glory. He's referring to to heaven. I mean, how old will we be? How will we relate to one another? Will we recognize one another? What kind of a body will we have? What will we do? What will we look like? It has not appeared yet. Those details have not been made known. But he says, but here is what we do know. And he tells us three things that we do know when the Son of God will appear. Number one, he says, Jesus will appear. He says, we know that when he appears, and this word appears means to make manifest, to become visible. You remember in Acts 1, verses 9 through 11, Jesus ascended up into heaven before the very watching eyes of the disciples, and two angels uh, were there and escorted Jesus back to glory. And then the angels looked down and said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus who was taken from you will come in like manner. I mean, you're watching him go up. You're going to watch him come back down when he does appear. It, It will be a... Uh, a visible appearance. He will appear. In fact, that's what the word revelation means. It's an unveiling so that you can see. We, he will appear, and then second, we will see him. And at the end of verse 2, uh, the order needs to be understood. What is the cause and what is the effect? We know that when he appears, we will be like him. That's the effect because, here comes the cause now, because we will see him just as he is. You see, it's like looking into a mirror and we become like that which we see. We first see him, 
then we will become like him. We will be transformed from glory to glory once we see him. So it says we will see him, next four words, just as he is. We're not going to see the humble carpenter from Galilee. We're not going to see the meek Messiah. We're not going to see the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. We are going to see the sovereign, triumphant, king of kings and lord of lords. He will not have a crown of thorns on his head. He will have many diadems upon his head. Uh, So many diadems, it's just sovereignty upon sovereignty upon sovereignty upon sovereignty just stacked up to the heights of of heaven, incomprehensible to us this morning, the full measure and unlimited extent of his absolute, infinite, unhindered sovereignty. And we will see him just as he is, his hair whiter than, uh, than, than snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet standing burnished bronze. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, his face shining like the sun, When John saw him on Patmos, it says he fell at his feet like a dead man. You know what that means? He just fainted. He he went unconscious to see the glorified Christ. What What a vision that will be one day. We love him now by faith. How much more will we love him by sight in that day? You're going to see the glorified Christ as he is dazzling splendor, radiant in glory, reflecting all of the attributes of God, shining brighter than 10,000 suns in the sky above. And then third, you will be made like him. (laughs) As much as a glorified creature can be made like their creator. We will still be saints. He will be the Savior. It does not say we will be equal to him, just that we will be like him. Uh, We we will receive a, a glorified body, a glorified eyes to look upon him, glorified heart to adore him, glorified tongue to praise him, glorified knees to bow before him, Glorified feet to run to him. Glorified hands to cast our crowns before him. Glorified ears to hear his voice. A glorified body that will never grow weary and never grow tired. That will be endued with supernatural ability to sing his praises throughout all eternity future. And never grow weary and never grow tired. A body perfectly adapted for our future home in heaven. But more than that, on the inside, a glorified soul and a glorified spirit, our sin nature will be eradicated and never again a a selfish thought, never again uh, uh, the appearing of, of sin within our soul. Every thought, every affection, pure and holy and righteous and good. You're not even going to recognize yourself in that day. And this is more real than you're coming to church today. We shall behold him just as he is.
It will be jaw-dropping. It will be knee-bending. It will be heart-pounding. It will be soul-enlarging. It will be joy-filling. It will be extraordinary. And then the last thing in verse 3, the purifying of the church. There's always great application that comes after great doctrine. And so John is a great preacher. And he applies these truths and he says, this is how the rubber meets the road. This is how this is to be lived out in your life. You need to do more than just know this and love this. You need to live this. So he says, and everyone, referring to all believers, who has this hope. And when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not using it like wishful thinking, like I, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. The word hope in the Bible refers to a confident assurance. It refers to a certain conviction that's unwavering. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him, on the Lord Jesus Christ, purifies himself, even as he is pure. The one who truly is heavenly-minded will be earthly good in that he will keep his house in order. He will not become entangled with the things of this world. He will sanctify himself as God will sanctify him. He will live a life of separation and be insulated from this world as we penetrate into this world. And how much so? This is just as he is pure. He's very pure. He is the sinless son of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin. Even the demons cried out, you are the holy one of, of Israel. And this is really an echo of Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. You shall be holy for I am holy. It's also in Leviticus 19, verse 2. And Jesus repeats it in Matthew 5, 48. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And th this is just an echo of that with slightly different words, synonymous expression, that we must purify ourselves just as he is pure. And let me remind myself and remind you, that's a pretty high standard. And he's not lowering the bar one milla inch, which is a mixed metaphor, but <laughs> I understand that. He's not lowering the bar at all. We're to be as holy as he is holy. Now, we're going to sin and we're going to fall short, but that's our goal and that's our direction and that's our pursuit. The purifying of the church. This morning, are you heavenly minded? Or have you become entangled with the philosophies and the ideologies of this world, the values and the priorities of this world? We must purify our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart 
We must purify our minds. 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action. Be holy yourselves. We must purify our eyes. Job said in Job 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Even Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. We must purify our ears. Proverbs 2.21, make your ear attentive to wisdom. We must purify our feet. Proverbs 4.26, watch the path of your feet. We must purify our hands. Matthew 5.30, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. In reality, we must purify every inch and every ounce of us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Romans 12.1 says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice which is acceptable to God and an unholy sacrifice is unacceptable to our holy God. So, we must be heavenly minded to be earthly good. And as I bring this to a conclusion, I would not be so naive as to think that everyone in this room is born again. There's no way we could get this many preachers together. We couldn't get this many missionaries together. We couldn't get this many seminary professors together and everyone be born again. How much more so among us here today? Even Jesus, who had 12, one of them was a devil. The tares are always sown among the wheat, and the bad fish caught in the same net with good fish. As you would find yourself here today, if the Lord is making you aware that you are outside of Christ, I want you to know that you are under the wrath of God this moment. And you are a sinner in the hands of an angry God. And if you were to die this moment, you would go to hell forever. And there would be no relief. And there would be no escape. But this moment, as you find yourself in the house of God, and the word of God has been preached to you, you have been told of a God who has demonstrated his love towards sinners and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You have heard of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, this God from all eternity past has designed the plan of salvation in the gospel that his son would be born of a virgin so that he would enter the human race and be like us, yet be unlike us in that he would have no sin. He was born under the law that throughout the entirety of his life he would obey and keep the very law that you and I have broken day after day after day and that his perfect obedience to the law of God is what is imputed to us in justification. If you would believe upon Christ, he would declare you righteous, and it would be as though you have perfectly obeyed from the heart every, every minute part of his moral law. 
He went to the cross, was lifted up to die, and there upon Calvary's cross, God made him to be sin for us. There with the shedding of his blood and the sacrifice of his life, he appeased the righteous anger of God towards all who will believe in Christ. He reconciled holy God and unholy sinners together through the blood of his cross. And with his blood, he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He has bought us with his blood for himself. And we now, when we believe in Christ, we belong to him. He was taken off that cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, with all the authority that belongs to him as the Son of God and the Son of Man, he raised himself from the dead. He said, I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it back up again. This commandment I received from my Father, and he has ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you have never called upon the name of the Lord, May you do so this very moment. And he says, him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He is a friend of sinners. And he is a physician who has come not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. You need to tell him what a sinner you are. Because he did not die for good people. He died for awful people. And if you will come to him and humble yourself and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, the sinner. The gates of paradise will be swung open to you. And he will receive you unto himself. And it will glorify the Father for you to come to him and he will wash you he will cleanse you he will clothe you with his perfect righteousness he will come to live inside of you and for the rest of your life every step that you take he will cause all things to work together ultimately for your good this is the most extraordinary offer that would ever be made to you The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And if you have never called upon the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your moment with God. Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. Hell is filled with procrastinators. There is an urgency about the state of your soul if you are outside of Christ. And hell is filled with people who attended church, went to church, were members of the church, served in the church, preached in the church, sang in the church. Church will get you nothing for eternity. It's only Christ who saves. And once you commit your life to Christ, he'll put you in a church just like this. And you need to be a vital part of it. Will you repent of your sins? Will you confess what a sinner you are? Will you throw yourself upon his mercy? Will you swallow your pride 
and come to the end of your stinking self and believe upon him who is infinitely holy and perfect, he will take you into his arms and he will never let you go. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one shall pluck them from his hand. I and the Father are one. Run to Christ in your heart. Flee to Christ, and he will receive you and gather you in if you will come like a little child and repent and believe in him. May God give you the grace to do this this day and enter into the experience of how great a love the Father has for us. Let us pray. Father, only you could love people like us. Only you could demonstrate such great love towards such unlovely sinners as we are. We praise you. We glorify your name. That even from all eternity past, you loved us with a love that would never let go until you brought us to yourself and claimed us for your own. Father, we long for the day when the trumpet will sound and we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and to see your son just as he is. We long for that day to be taken out of this sin-sick world and to stand in your holy presence until then, may we purify ourselves, even as he is pure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.